Welcome to the Future Charlotte podcast. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. I've spent more than a decade studying Charlotte, first as a journalist and now as assistant director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. 20 years ago, this city looked radically different. No light rail, a smaller skyline, and breweries, what breweries? What will we look like in the next 20 years? That's what we're exploring on this show. Our guests today are both from Sustain Charlotte. We have Shannon Bins, founder and executive director, and Meg Fensel, program director. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Eli. So first off, uh, Shannon, let's start with you just to go over some of the basics. Just tell me what Sustain Charlotte is, what you do, and the condensed origin story for this group. Sure. So we are a community-based nonprofit that I founded in 2010. So we're just a little over a decade old now. And our mission is to inspire choices that lead to a healthy, equitable, and vibrant community for generations to come. In other words, we encourage acting with the long-term impacts of our decisions, and in particular, land use and transportation decisions in mind. Practically speaking, this means educating and encouraging those who are making decisions to both know and value the best decision for, for everyone in the long term, not just the, the short term for some. So sometimes those decision makers I'm talking about are elected officials or government agency staff. Other times the decision makers are everyone who lives here, all of our residents. We go about that, you know, trying to influence and educate um, decisions through all the means available, um, our events, social media, newsletters, harnessing mass media, creating coalitions, attending community meetings and other community events. So really all the different ways of informing and engaging people. So I think sustainability is a really big concept that kind of touches every aspect of our lives from how we move around to even things like what we eat, what we wear. It's one of those concepts that I think can feel both uh, really huge and intimidating sometimes for people, but also kind of um, abstract. So I just want to hear from from each of you, how do you define sustainability? How do you define it writ large? And how do we define sustainability in a Charlotte-specific context? So uh, Meg, you want to start? So we have a very simple definition of sustainability, which is the ability to meet our needs today without compromising the ability to meet our needs in the future. And all of the dimensions of sustainability are intertwined. It's about the environment. It's about the economy. It's about social equity. We as human beings interact with our natural environment, the trees, the creeks, the air, but we also interact with the built environment, the buildings, the streets, the greenways, the ways that we get around. And the ways that we use our land and the ways that we travel have massive direct and indirect impacts on the natural environment. So as an example of a direct impact, if I drive my car more often, those tailpipe emissions directly make our air pollution worse. As an indirect example, more sprawl, more, more spreading out over the landscape results in people needing to drive further distances and more often just to get to their everyday destinations, which in turn results in more air pollution and water pollution. So when we think about sustainability, not only do we need to think about those three E's, environment, economy, and equity, but we need to think about those direct and indirect impacts on the natural and built environment. And Shannon, what does this look like in a Charlotte-specific environment? So as Meg alluded to, and, and, and I as well, you know, there are lots of ways, and as you said, there's lots of ways to go about tackling sustainability. 
in the way, or I should say advancing sustainability in the way that we go about that is really focusing on land use and transportation decisions, uh, both policy decisions, but also individual decisions. So the reason we focus on those two issues is we really believe that particularly at the local level, that's where there's the most opportunity to impact the economy, the environment and equity, which most people would, would not think that, uh, I think. So we're, how do we go about that? I think, you know, really having plans and policies that allow people to, you know, live closer to where they need to go and have ways of getting between those places that don't require getting into a car. So that's, you know, again, where I think we are really challenged in Charlotte, to answer your question, like many, you know, Sunbelt cities uh, that were built after World War II, we are very, we very much designed our city and a lot of our growth happened since World War II and since the invention of cars. So we've designed our city with the assumption people will get around by cars. And that is, um, that is a very problematic uh, situation from a sustainability standpoint for, for reasons that, that Meg mentioned. So are we getting away from that? I've seen a lot of changes in development patterns, obviously a market-driven move toward some densification in places like Ballantyne. There are uh, new investments like transit that are being considered. But, you know, in a city that's more than 300 square miles with uh, just, you know, suburbia that stretches very, very far. And, you know, full disclosure, I live in the middle of that. I have to drive to pretty much almost everything. Mm-hmm. Are we getting away from that model? And can a city like Charlotte really do that fast enough? I would say that we are finally getting away from the very auto-centric way of designing our future developments and our ways of getting around. The biggest challenge in Charlotte is that because most of our population growth happened after cars were invented, we have a massive amount of this sort of legacy infrastructure that was just built to meet the needs of people in cars. It forgot and ignored the needs of people who don't drive. It ignored the needs of children and older adults and people with disabilities and people who can't afford to own a car. And that's thousands of dollars a year year to own and maintain a car. And it's always more expensive to try to retrofit infrastructure that wasn't built to accommodate the needs of everyone that it would have been to to build it right in the first place. I think a great example of that is our sidewalks. We have a lot of very narrow, what are called back of curb sidewalks in Charlotte. They're often only four or five feet wide. They're immediately next to the right-hand lane of traffic that is often going uh, 45, 55, 60 miles per hour. It's not a comfortable experience for pedestrians, but it's very expensive and often logistically challenging to move that sidewalk closer towards the buildings farther away from the vehicular traffic to make that sidewalk wider. You have to relocate the sewer, the gutters, you have to relocate utility poles. Often there's land acquisition that has to happen. So it's very challenging from many different perspectives to retrofit uh, infrastructure that was not built on a human scale in the first place, but it's also very necessary work. It needs to be done if Charlotte is growing to, going to grow in a, in a sustainable way so we can really meet the needs of everyone. It's also important to think about investing in bicycle and pedestrian and transit infrastructure in a way that is really going to build a network. If I have wonderful sidewalks that are a mile from my house and there's one really hazardous intersection that I can't safely cross on foot, 
those might as well be 10 miles away from me. So a network is really only as strong as, as its weakest link. And we need to be thinking in terms of systems and networks and not just isolated patches of infrastructure as opportunities arise. Of course, we don't wanna miss those opportunities to invest as redevelopment happens, but we also need to go for that higher hanging fruit that is more challenging to do. I would just add to that, Eli, it's a really important question that you've asked and it's, it's, it's going to be very challenging to rebuild or, you know, accommodate um, a different, you know, more sustainable form of land use and transportation, more sustainable built environment, because just as we built this city, not only over centuries, but, you know, a lot of it's been built in the last 80 or 100 years. A lot of that, as Meg is saying, needs to be, you know, uh, rebuilt. The good news is cities, growing cities, as you know, are very dynamic. So they're constantly changing. Redevelopment is constantly happening in a, in a place like Charlotte. So every time we do a redevelopment, we have an opportunity to fix or learn from mistakes in the past. I think another important thing to, to, to rem remember that, that I think, you know, gives, gives, gives us hope is that a lot of Charlotte hasn't yet been built when you think about the projected population growth that, you know, is expected. So we are still going to be building, doing a lot of additional building just to accommodate the expected growth. And we have a chance to get to get that right. One of the, I guess, sort of conceits behind this podcast is looking at Charlotte 20 years down the line. And this is a year when a lot of the plans that are guiding that growth are kind of coming together and being really finalized in concrete terms, uh, things like the Unified Development Ordinance, the Transit Plan, the Tree Canopy Action Plan. I think we're kind of in an almost unique 18 to 24 month stretch right now where the rules that are going to define the next generation's growth are being written. So how are we doing incorporating sustainability into a lot of these new plans? Um, you know, as you look at the efforts the city is doing for everything from, you know, Charlotte Future 2040 to Unified Development Ordinance, how are we doing? I'll take a crack and then would love to have you jump in too, Meg. I think, you know, looking at it plan by plan, it really does get down to what, you know, what's it, what's in those plans, right? And I think with the comp plan, you know, one of the uh, overarching themes is equity, which is something that's been, been missing from past land use plans for basically all of, more or less all of Charlotte's history. So I think that's very encouraging. I think just the fact that we are going through the process of, of having an actual current comprehensive land use plan in itself is a big step in, in a sustainable direction. The lack of that plan uh, or a current plan is really, to my mind, at the uh, foundation of a lot of the unsustainable choices that, that we've made. Of course, it's not enough to just have a plan. The plan has to be implemented. You know, that, that's been part of our, our challenge as well. But I totally agree with you. We've got these different plans coming together, both land use and transportation, all within the more or less the same period. And so, you know, we do have an opportunity to to, to get things right. We also have an opportunity to get things wrong um, if these aren't the if these plans are not different than plans of the past. But from what you know we're seeing, these plans are much more sustainability oriented and and you know, again, if implemented, if funded and implemented, will move us in a much more sustainable path than what we've been on. 
I was very encouraged to see city staff take a step back as they were working on the unified development ordinance and really decide to dig in and create a comprehensive plan that not only brings together all of the other plans for the city that have already been adopted in terms of land use and transportation, but really goes back to the community and asks residents and people who live and work in Charlotte, what is it that you want to see Charlotte grow into? Because this is such a pivotal time. We have a tremendous opportunity to shape the future of what Charlotte will look like. We could just continue to do business as usual and just we'll get whatever we happen to get. But if we're really intentional about incorporating public input about the vision for future growth, and we combine that with the right rules, we will achieve what we what we want to become as a city versus kind of let it, leaving thing up, things up to chance or leaving things up to the market. So this is a very exciting time, just these, these next few months and years in terms of transportation and mobility planning, as well as uh, land use. I know the transit-oriented development districts were uh, sort of the first sliver of the unified development ordinance that's been rolled out. As you look at the drafts of these plans and see what city leaders are thinking about land use, transportation in the future, uh, are there any particular things that you see that are encouraging or discouraging? Anything that you see that makes you go, you know, I, I think those guys are getting it. Well, I, I don't. While I don't have them in front of me, I think when you look at the, I believe they're called the goals of the of the comprehensive plan or the, you know, those are that overarching set of goals. I think are spot on. You know, I think those goals really capture what it is we need to be driving towards. And I, and I wish I could could you know name some of them, but I know that those goals are are really the right goals. And I think again, it really comes down to whether or not we're going to, you know, execute the strategies needed. To, to hit the goals. I also mentioned since we haven't talked, we've been talking about, about the comprehensive plan, which is extremely important, but also this, you know, I, I want to spend just a moment talking about the strategic mobility plan, which the city is developing now, in which uh, we, sh we should see a draft of uh, mid-year around May or June. This is really the first time the city has ever tried to have an integrated transportation plan that considers all modes of travel and guiding that with a, a goal around, you know, what percent of people get around or get to work by each of the various modes of travel, you know, walking versus biking versus transit, you know, versus driving and so forth. So, you know, that's a, a really critical uh, a plan as well that, um, you know, will, if done right, you know, complement the, the land use plan. And, um, and then, of course, the hard, the hardest part will be uh, execution and, and securing the funding and the political will to make those turn those plans into reality. And this work on transit-oriented development districts is so critical for Charlotte. We're talking about the areas in the vicinity of current and future rail lines, light rail, streetcar, and one of the most important things to consider is the public is basically making an investment in public transportation. So, so the public should have the benefit of these areas being very walkable. These should be great uses of land that give us a good return on our investment. And one of the things that I think is most important about the transit-oriented developments is uh, eliminating parking requirements. Parking is way uh, oversupplied in, in many parts of 
the United States and in Charlotte. And we often just take parking for granted. We, we assume that parking should be free or very low cost and, and abundant, but it's, it's an incredibly inefficient use of land in a, a highly urbanized area. And when we look at housing in particular, parking, whether it's required by a zoning ordinance or whether it's required by the uh, investor who is, who's uh, backing the construction of a property, overbuilding parking is very wasteful and it's, it's very inequitable for the people who live in that housing who don't own a car. So based on one report that was done by the Victoria Transport Policy Institute, adding one parking space per unit increases the cost of that housing unit by about 12 and percent and two parking spaces can increase cost by 25%. So whether the person who lives there uses that parking or not, they're paying for it. And that cost is hidden usually in the cost of the rent. So if we can build affordable housing and really housing across, across price points, that gives people the option to live in an area where owning a car is not a necessity. It can be a choice, but it isn't necessary to connect them to their job, to connect them to the grocery store, to medical appointments. That can really open up opportunities for people to, to save a lot of money on things that they could uh, better, you know, better spend that income on, on other necessities. Yeah, I know that we've seen just a tremendous amount of parking built on, along the blue line in a lot of the apartment buildings that have, you know, one space per bedroom in developments like uh, mixed use developments near Stonewall Street that just have gigantic parking decks, even though they're a block from a light rail stop or even connected directly to them. So I know that's an issue that a lot of people have been focused on. And I think the way you put it really gets back to the question of, are we ready to move away from cars? And if people don't have a way to move around without them, they'll keep demanding it, even if it's expensive. So that kind of, I think, just shows how connected everything is and is a really good example of some of what we've been talking about, about how land use and transportation choices contribute to cost and the affordable housing challenges we face and how interrelated this all is. So kind of piggybacking off that, you know, this is a, a really complicated, challenging field to be working in. What what motivates each of you about this work? I know that this is not just uh, a job, but in a lot of ways is uh, probably a calling. Go ahead, Meg. Okay, well, there's, there's a quote that I absolutely love by Enrique Peñalosa, former mayor of Bogota, Colombia. And he says, a developed country is not a place where the poor have cars. It's where the rich use public transportation. And I love that quote because it's really about people across different economic levels having choices. So whether somebody is high income but may no longer be able to have their independence because they live in the suburbs and they can't drive anymore, or whether someone lives in a low income community that's just not accessible by bus. All of us need different things at different points in our lives. So to me, I think what motivates me to do this work is that it's really at the end of the day about quality of life for everyone. We all need to have access to the things that make us happy. We need to have access to each other to be connected as a community. And because I see that physical mobility, the ability to connect to each other and to our built and natural environment is so vital to our, our just our quality of life. If we can do this work to really 
better connect people without the need to spend a lot of money or a lot of time getting around. We are going to be healthier and happy. We're going to have a healthier environment. We are going to be able to afford to live and work and play here in Charlotte for generations to come. And I'm also incredibly inspired by the work that we've been able to do in partnership with neighborhoods throughout Charlotte. We work with dozens of neighborhoods on different issues and really getting to know the neighborhood leaders and residents as experts in their own experience has been very powerful. You know, we, we often, when I say we, you know, people who, who work in nonprofits, we often start our careers thinking that we know all, all the answers, but there's a real sense of humility that comes with the job after we really get out there and start doing our work. Everybody has their own life experience and we have so much that we learn from especially from those neighborhood partners that we can then combine with some of the technical experience and expertise that we develop on the job and then go out and continue to partner with, with other neighborhood organizations. So uh, I think I'm inspired to do the work because I see the change that has already happened over the past seven years that I've been here. I know for Shannon, it's, it's been longer than that, but there's so many wonderful, well-intentioned people that are working across sectors, whether it's in government or business or academia. There's so many people that really want to see Charlotte grow sustainably. And it's it's really a matter of playing that role of being a convener and a facilitator of those conversations that, that wakes me up in the morning and gets me excited to do the work. What about you, Shannon? The comment Meg just ended on is essentially my answer to that question. Just the ability to bring people together who otherwise would not be working together to affect real social change that not only benefits them personally and, and you know, their community, but also future generations from a variety, in a variety of ways, from a health perspective, from an economic perspective, from an equity perspective, really just overall quality of life. And I, I see the results of our work with, you know, in that way almost every day on a regular basis. And you mentioned future generations, and I think ever since I've been growing up, I'm in my I'm in my mid thirties now, but my whole life, climate change has been kind of this looming issue. You know, that's always fifty years in the future, eighty years in the future, in the year twenty one hundred, whatever it might be. But now, especially in the most recent years, we've seen real, concrete effects that make it a reality, a present reality. And ever since I've had kids, that's been uh, something I've thought a lot more about. Mm -hmm. In Charlotte specifically, you know, we don't have the rising seas. We don't have California-style wildfires. Why do we need to be kind of on our guard about climate change and, and considering it? You know, I, I think that, first of all, I, I feel the same way, uh, Eli. What One of the major drivers for me and and you know, starting this organization was my concern for climate change. I do think that's, you know, arguably the greatest threat to all of humanity. And I, I decided many years ago, this is the issue that I, I felt I wanted to, to focus my, my career on. And I think, you know, what I learned uh, after starting Sustain Charlotte was just how important, you know, land use and transportation decisions are from both an equity and a climate perspective. And, and you know, a lot of people don't think of it this way, but climate change is the ultimate equity issue. It's, but it's a, a form of equity that 
we call intergenerational equity, right? Are we making decisions today that are fair, equitable to generations who follow us? So sort of the ultimate equity issue, you know, obviously we haven't done a very good job thinking about thinking about the future generations when we when we talk about think in terms of climate change. To get more specific about your question, um, or to answer your question about why should Charlatans care, the, the fact is that climate change is you know, causing increases in temperature across the entire Southeast, including, including Charlotte. Since 1970, average annual temperatures in our region, the Southeast, have increased by about two degrees. And these higher temperatures and greater demand for water due to population growth will strain our water resources across the Southeast and, and already have. So just our ability to have enough sufficient, clean drinking water is really uh, threatened when we talk about higher temperatures. Uh, we've also seen really heavy downpours or an increase in heavy downpours across the Southeast, including Charlotte, which of course leads to more flooding. And, and flooding has, um, of course, a multitude of, of impacts on, on people. But ultimately all of these things, higher temperatures or increased flooding, you know, really have human health impacts. The higher temperatures, you know, not only, you know, deplete water supplies, but they add to more frequent heat waves, which can lead to, you know, heat stress, heat-related deaths. Um, heat, high temperatures also contribute to worse air quality, which poses a risk to people with asthma and other respiratory illnesses. And I think lastly, ground-level ozone, which uh, is, is the precursor to smog, is projected to increase in all in all 19 of the largest urban areas of the southeast, of course, with Charlotte being one of them. And this this will likely increase hospital admissions due to those respiratory illnesses I just mentioned, more emergency room visits for asthma and and missed days, missed school days by by children. And that's all you know. Those are all statistics that come from the the EPA's own analysis. So it's unfortunately already affecting us, and it, it will continue to do so. And Mecklenburg County is just right, right within the limits of the federal standards for ground level ozone that were set to protect human health. So as we think about those 300 to 400,000 more people that will be in the city of Charlotte alone by 2040, we need to also think that, you know, they're going to be bringing vehicles with them. And, and while certainly the transition to electric vehicles will help with air pollution, we know that there are other sources of air pollution, uh, the ways that we, we generate our electricity and, and even how we power those electric vehicles that need to be cleaned up. We also know that there are larger impacts on low income populations when we think about climate change. So many of these low income neighborhoods are already suffering from their, I should say the residents in these neighborhoods are already suffering with higher rates of chronic diseases that are exacerbated by air pollution, that are exacerbated by heat, things like asthma, uh, kidney disease, heart and, and lung problems. We also know that lower income residents are likely to disproportionately bear the brunt of those higher energy bills as our climate changes. They're gonna be needing to run their air conditioning more in the summer. And that takes up a higher percentage of their income than it does for uh, for high income people. We also know that many of the low income communities have fewer trees. So there's that, that urban heat island effect that will uh, kind of amplify the, the heat that is felt in those communities as climate change gets worse. Yeah, I think it's an issue that has become really real for a lot of people, maybe in a way that it wasn't five or 10 years ago. 
So as we get ready to uh, to wrap up here, I've got a final kind of double-barreled question for each of you. What grade do you give us overall in, in creating a sustainable future for Charlotte? A to F scale. And when you look ahead a couple of decades, what do you think are the most important concrete changes that we can make now to create a more sustainable future? Okay, so uh, we actually did a sustainability report card back in 2014, and we graded nine different dimensions of sustainability. And for each of them, we gave two grades. One was how are we doing over time as a city? Are we getting better or worse? And the other grade was comparing our progress to that of peer cities. And so we, we had grades ranging, I think, from, from A to D. There, there weren't any Fs on there. What I would say is that uh, really, I, I'm going to be an optimist, and I, and I think uh, there has been so much progress just within the past few years. There's been so much planning and, and uh, the start of the implementation of those plans. I would probably give us somewhere in the C plus range uh, where we are um, innovating and we are starting to make the investments. And I believe that we are on an, an upward trajectory to increase that grade. So I definitely want to give a shout out to the staff and the elected officials of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County for getting behind that change and standing up and saying that we need to implement these plans. We can't just have these plans that sit on the shelf like Elf on the Shelf. We really need to get out there and, and uh, make the case for really making the investment. In terms of what concrete investments or changes we can make, this is the time that we need to be investing in transportation choices for the future. With every passing day, land becomes more expensive. With every passing day, land becomes unavailable. If 20 years from now, we want to have our children and then eventually our grandchildren able to hop on the light rail or hop on a bike and ride along the greenway instead of having to get in their cars to go a few miles, we need to be making those investments now while the land is still relatively affordable and available. So I think, I think the biggest thing that we need to do now is as a community, we need to say that most of that low hanging fruit, that those easy wins, most of those have been done or are slated to get done. We need to reach higher up on that fruit tree and start uh, making some, some tough choices about the trade-offs that we need to make as a community to achieve the vision of where Charlotte is headed in the future. And what about you, Shannon? Yeah, I, of course, agree with everything Meg said. I, I would just, you know, add on the first part of your question about what grade would I give Charlotte really did really does depend on the, the time horizon. We as a city are very late compared to many of our, our peer cities to the uh, sustainability, addressing sustainability challenges. I think we didn't really begin in, in any earnest way until about 10 years ago when we hired, the city hired their first sustainability director and the county did around that time as well. So I think, you know, pre 2010, I, I would give us, uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty poor score, um, you know, probably in that D, D range if not F. But in the last 10 years, I, I would say we've made some really important, you know, steps forward. But uh, like Meg said, I, I wouldn't give us an A or a B yet. We're, we're, we still have a lot of catching up to do and we still have to make sustainability a, a higher priority. Than, than we are today. We have to not only commit to more sustainable goals through things like the comprehensive plan and the strategic mobility plan, 
But more importantly, we have to implement those plans, which means securing, in the case of the mobility plan, really securing the funding uh, and the political will to you know, build the projects that hopefully will be outlined in, in, in some detail in the plan. And then from the, the land use perspective or the comprehensive plan perspective, it's, it's sort of the same, same deal. That's less a function, I think, of, of funding and really more a function of political will. So, you know, when a developer wants to develop a piece of land, really honoring the comprehensive plan, making sure we get the right regulations or rules in place, and then enforce those rules. I think if we can become a, a city with strong rules that we actually enforce at the time that redevelopments come forward or new developments come forward, you know, we can really change the pattern of growth and, and the, the path that, that, that we're on. But if we don't, if we continue as we have in the past, sort of creating plans and then largely ignoring them um, due to lack of political will, we're, we're not going to be able to make much progress. Well, thank you so much both for joining today. Um, where can people follow you and find more if they want to learn more about these issues and what you're doing about them? We have a website, sustaincharlotte.org, and you can sign up to receive our weekly newsletter there. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we post daily, and we would love to have a conversation with you. Great. Well, Shannon, Meg, thank you so much for your time. Come on again sometime, and we'll see if we made it up to a B or an, even an A someday. Sounds great. We can get there. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.